Soren Kierkegaard said, Socrates could not prove that the soul was immortal. He merely said, This matter occupies me so much that I will order my life as though immortality were a fact. Should it prove to be wrong? Eh bien, then I won't regret my choice. Welcome to the Soul Podcast. I'm Stacy Wheeler. Today we're going to look at some great thinkers as the old religions came to an end. And then we're going to look at the words of great poets and philosophers of the new religions. And we'll see what they had to say about the soul. And as we do this, you'll start to see how the soul transcends religions and outlives them. So let's go on a journey to ancient Greece, about 400 years BCE. Long before Socrates and long before organized religions started claiming they were the guardians of the soul, people pondered the question of the human relationship to the soul. As we've heard in earlier episodes, people began writing down their beliefs as soon as written language came into use. It seems the question of the soul has been something we've been fascinated with since the earliest spoken languages, and it seems that some of the greatest minds had an opinion about it. Around the time the Greeks were worshipping 12 primary gods, including Zeus, Poseidon, and Apollo, Socrates, the great thinker from Athens, was pondering the question of the soul. Socrates, who's often called the father of Western philosophy, believed the soul was what animated the body. Simply stated, when the soul leaves, the body dies. He believed in the concept of dualism, which is the belief that reality or existence is divided into two parts. These two parts are the body and the soul. Socrates believed the soul is immortal, and he had a lot to say about it. One thing he said was, I'm confident that there truly is such a thing as living again, that the living spring from the dead, and that the souls of the dead are in existence. Socrates believed death is not the end of existence. Now these concepts may seem familiar today, but with Socrates' words, you can see where this thinking started taking center stage. His examination of the soul took what was simply a deep knowing people had and drew out easy to understand concepts for people. To many, if not most at the time, the immortality of the soul was simply a given fact. Since the earliest times, people had been talking about it and writing about it. It didn't matter what nationality a person was or what religion, if any, the soul was something humans had universally felt as part of themselves. Socrates' simplified way of approaching the topic of the soul was appealing. His ideas were later expanded by Plato and other philosophers, and much of his thinking was embraced by religions hundreds of years later. As a reminder where we are on the timeline, this is still hundreds of years before the birth of Christianity or the Islamic religion. Already, the greatest thinkers of their time are putting a lot of thought into the puzzling topic of the soul. And it shouldn't surprise us that Socrates wanted to examine this topic. After all, he's the guy who famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. It's also worth mentioning that there's no real debate over the existence of the soul in this time. The primary focus of scholars and deep thinkers was trying to understand what our relationship to the soul was. What was this thing we're feeling, we've always felt, that we all seem to understand we have? Throughout history, there will be wild debates over gods. Wars will be fought over religion, and lives will be lost over religious beliefs. But there will be hardly any debate of any kind over the existence of the soul. Moving forward a short way, we're going to look at Socrates' protege, Plato. Plato had plenty to write about the soul, 
one thing he wrote was, the soul of man is immortal and imperishable. So again, we see evidence of how the soul was viewed about a thousand years before Christianity became a dominant religion. So on the heels of Socrates was the great Athenian thinker Plato. Socrates was primarily an orator, rarely ever writing down his thoughts, he just spoke, spoke his thoughts. Plato decided to record his own thoughts in writing. He wrote once that man is a being in search of meaning. Clearly, this was true about him. He was a big thinker and a prolific writer, recording his thoughts as well as those of Socrates, who, as I mentioned, preferred to speak instead of write. So thanks to him, Socrates' ideas have been preserved. So because of this, many, many generations later, we can have a clear understanding of both of their positions about the soul. And the issue of the soul was not a question with gray areas for Plato. As you can tell from the quote, the soul of man is immortal and imperishable. And in one of his great works, Phaedo, Plato wrote, And indeed the soul reasons best when none of these senses trouble it, neither hearing, nor sight, nor pain, nor pleasure, but when it is most by itself, taking leave of the body, and as far as possible, having no contact or association with it in its search for reality. I need to stop here and note that this way of thinking aligns with Buddhist and Hindu philosophies about meditation in connection with our deepest self, the soul. Well, let's take a second and look at the Bhagavad Gita, a Hindu holy text that was written more than 2,000 years earlier, and this is what it says about meditation. When meditation is mastered, the mind is unwavering, like the flames of a lamp in a windless place. In the still mind, in the depths of meditation, the self reveals itself. Behold the self, by means of the self, an aspirant knows the joy and peace of complete fulfillment. If you meditate, you may be able to relate to this statement on how you can tap into that joy, that peace and fulfillment. I know I do. So like Hindus and Buddhists, Plato understood that quiet reflection or meditation moves us away from the ego and closer to the soul. Now just a quick side note about Plato's book Phaedo. In ancient times, Phaedo was known by a different name. The title? On the Soul. The entire writing was a philosophical dialogue on the immortality of the soul. 300 years after Plato came the Common Era, marked by the birth and death of Jesus of Nazareth, and of course the birth of Christianity. Now though Christianity wasn't the first religion to talk about the soul, it was the first to link to it in a way where they claimed to be the lone protector of the spirit we feel inside. Because of this, many of us, me included when I was growing up, have lived our lives thinking the concept of the soul is a religious construct, you know, something that the, the church came up with. It's vital to understand that this is completely false. So if you've been listening to previous episodes, and I hope you have, you should already understand that. The soul has been written about for at least 9,000 years before the birth of Christianity. And it may have been spoken about for tens of thousands of years prior to that, before the written word. It's impossible for us to know how long people have been feeling this deep spirit inside. But it's clear that it's been a very, very, very long time. I'd also like to note, I, I don't say this, any of these things about the church, with the intention of being insensitive to Christian beliefs. I say this to give the soul its due respect. The soul has been the center of our truth for as far back as we can see into history. Jesus of Nazareth came and went around 2,000 years ago. The Greek gods were worshipped for more than 600 years. The heyday of the Norse gods lasted several hundred to a few thousand years. 
the soul has been recognized in different ways since tens of thousands of years before all of these. And it's been present in our understanding ever since. So we can see that Christianity was the first religion to connect so directly to the soul, claiming to be the lone protector of it. The church recognized that people understood the existence of the soul, rather than compete with what has been called the God inside. They instead claimed it and spread the word that unless people committed their lives to Christianity, this thing that makes us immortal would be in jeopardy. Let me show you what I mean. From the Bible in 1 Peter 1.9, we're told we have to have faith in Christ or our souls will be forfeited. It says, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Matthew 10.28 says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The Christian church understood that people had long accepted that the soul was eternal. They must have known they could not convince them otherwise. So instead, they introduced the idea that the soul could be tormented for eternity unless you accept the Christian faith. And as I said, no religion had ever tried to lay claim to the soul in such a massive way. They took an idea that was widely understood and accepted, that the soul exists and is immortal, and used it in order to empower the church. And the Christian religion is obsessed with the soul. The Bible has nearly 700 mentions of it. Again, I don't say any of this with the intention of being insensitive to Christian beliefs. These are just the facts. Each of us has our own individual path to our relationship with the soul. There are many ways to get there, and it's not my intention to tell anyone what their journey to the soul reunion should look like. That's far too personal a journey for me to interfere with. If you're Christian and you've used that path to reunite with your soul, then it served you in a beautiful way. I'm talking about the old church when the church was formed and horrible things were done in its name. I know it's really important that I be especially sensitive to the subject. After all, this is a current and active religion of the world. Now, as a personal note, I don't think the soul cares how we reunite. What matters is that we do and that we understand we are not just this body. You know, and I also want to note that I don't know if it matters to the soul that we reunite. It's not a requirement, I don't think. It's really more about us, this getting in touch with our soul, and, you know, sitting quietly, and that connection, and that, that big connection that some of us get to. Because when we do, we've historically experienced great joy and ecstasy, so it's really about us. Most importantly, when we reunite and feel that ecstasy, we remember who we are at our deepest core. You know, we spend so much time thinking we're just this body, just this experience, just this person, and all the labels we've been given. We start to see life in different and beautiful ways. We start seeing people differently and more beautifully. We'll dive into this more in later episodes, as well as ways to reunite if you haven't already. But for now, let's move forward into the modern age of religion as we jump forward 600 years into Sufism. You know, the Muslim holy book, the Quran, doesn't make a whole lot of specific claims about the nature of the soul like many other religions and holy books do. But a mystic group that formed after the death of Muhammad does. Sufism could be called the mystical branch of Islam. A Sufi is said to be a Muslim who seeks to annihilate the ego through connection with God. In Sufism, the word ru, spelled R-U-H, refers to a person's immortal, essential self, the soul. Again, another word that means soul. We've all got one. Every culture, every language. It's beautiful. 
So maybe the most famous of all the Sufis now is, uh, well, thanks largely to the internet and the rediscovery of his writings in the past couple decades, is a guy named Rumi. Rumi wrote a lot about the soul. Here's an example. All day I think about it, then at night I say it. Where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. My soul is from elsewhere. I'm sure of that. And I intend to end up there. Who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking. So a little background. Jalal al-Din Muhammad Rumi was born in 1207 in Afghanistan and ultimately made home in southern Turkey. In Turkey, he studied Sufism. For a long time, his writings were obscured in the Western world. I mean, very few people really knew about him. But he's been rediscovered recently. His poetry has given him an almost cult status in recent years online. Rumi has been quoted by well-known people such as Oprah Winfrey. And you can find more than a dozen English books that are written about him or containing his poetry. So why is this 13th century mystic so popular today? Well, a big part of it is that his 800-year-old writings speak beautifully on topics of love and the soul, things we can all relate to. Rumi had a beautiful way of saying things. There's a candle in your heart ready to be kindled. There's a void in your soul ready to be filled. You feel it, don't you? When I read these words, written in early medieval times, they ring true. I relate to them. I feel them. He also wrote, There's a life force within your soul. Seek that life. There's a gem in the mountain of your body. Seek that mine. Oh, traveler, if you are in search of that, don't look outside. Look inside yourself. So Rumi had a beautiful way of writing that makes him a joy to quote. Here he shows a clear understanding of the soul as the core of our being. He also wrote, sit quietly and listen for a voice that will say, be more silent. As that happens, your soul starts to revive. And he also said, the ego is a veil between humans and God. So we're starting to see a really interesting pattern form over hundreds and hundreds of years. These statements also, as we mentioned with other statements from other people, are also in line with the Buddhist and Hindu religions, with what they had to say for a very long time about connecting with the soul through silence and quiet meditation or prayer or sitting silently in nature. Aristotle and Plato saw it, so did Rumi. Hundreds of years later, a famous psychiatrist known as Carl Jung would say essentially the same thing, but from a clinical perspective rather than a spiritual one. We often work on different problems and find our way to the same answer. There could be many paths to the top of the mountain, which all end in the same place. As I said, soul journey is a very personal thing. So we've looked at the end of the old religions and bridged our way across to Christianity and into the Muslim religion. We've seen how the soul has stayed in people's awareness for nearly 70,000 years. We've seen how Christianity embraced it and laid claim to it, and we've seen how people all over the planet and throughout the ages have understood that quiet reflection brings us closer to it. And when we become closer to it, how the soul reunion brings us joy and peace. It should be illuminating that so many people around the world came to the same conclusion about the spirit we feel inside. It's undeniable we've known for centuries. When was the first time you felt it? Were you a small child in nature like me? 
I remember being a little boy laying in the tall grass in summer, looking up at the sky lying on my back. The soft white clouds floated across the blue sky, and I could see the blades of grass drifting above me, waving in the wind. And that sense of soft comfort came over me, just a beautiful joy. I felt safe and serene, and I didn't feel alone. And not in a way that I felt like someone was watching, but in a way that let me know I wasn't alone and had never been alone. The feeling made me know I was safe and okay. So when did you first feel your soul? When did you first feel that sensation that let you know there was so much more to you than what you see in the mirror? Remember that moment as you go through your day. Maybe sit with that thought as you listen to your breath and remember that immortal part of you. It's you. It's your soul. So here we are, most of the way through the history section. In the next episode, we're going to jump closer to the modern age. We're going to travel to the Americas to see what the Aztecs had to say about the soul, then back over to Europe in the Dark Ages, when people had to hide their belief in the soul and go underground with it, when speaking or writing about the soul could get a person killed. And we're also going to see the reemergence and hear what other people had to say about the beautiful spirit inside. So come back, will ya? Thank you for listening to The Soul Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, learned something new, or were just entertained, please tell your friends about the show and hit that follow button. This is the best way for other people to find the show. Check the show notes for links to supporting information as well as any books or other reading material related to this episode.